Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good Thursday afternoon. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind producing. And by the way, Justin Mansfield produced a portion of today's program as well. Today we're going to talk with David Brog. He is the author of Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. He is also the founding executive director of Christians United for Israel. We'll talk with him about his book later this hour. In the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk about a USA Today um, a column dealing with infertility and how they defined it. it seemed rather peculiar. We'll talk with Nancy Flory about that. And we'll also talk with Steve Malloy about uh, the EPA that apparently has uh, uh, colluded with organizations that um, predetermined the outcome of what was supposed to be a scientific study uh, on uh, determining endangered species. We'll get into that later in the five o'clock hour as well. Well, the Senate uh, yesterday took part in a rare White House briefing to hear what senior leaders described as an urgent national security threat posed by North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. Well, the hour-long secret session for all senators, I say secret, it was a classified section, was held uh, at the Eisenhower Executive Office building next to the White House. It included a brief appearance from the president who made short introductory remarks. Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also took part in the session. His presence is an indication that military options for dealing with North Korea likely were discussed. New steps by the administration will include the imposition of additional economic sanctions. Uh, The White House, according to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and the Director of Intelligence Dan Coats in a joint statement after the briefing, uh, the United States seeks stability and the peaceful denuclearization of the Korean pencil, Peninsula. Rather, We remain open to negotiations toward that goal. However, we remain prepared to defend ourselves and our allies. Well, the president's speech seeks to uh, pressure North Korea into dismantling nuclear, ballistic missile and prolifer- proliferation programs through imposing tighter economic sanctions and diplomatic measures, the three leaders also said. The senior officials uh, noted that past efforts to halt the North Korea Uh, illicit arms program had failed. With each provocation, North Korea jeopardizes stability in Northeast Asia, poses a growing threat to our allies and to the U.S. homeland, they stated. Senator John Bizarro uh, told MSNBC the meeting was very consequential and included discussion of North Korea's shift from liquid to solid fuel missile, improving nuclear weapons and missile capability. Uh, He said he favors increasing sanctions, including sanctions on China. Senator Chris Coons called the session very clear-eyed, sober, and serious. He told MSNBC the administration is uh, working to avoid a conflict and making it clear to China how serious we are about preventing North Korea from developing the capability to deliver a nuclear warhead by ICBM against the United States and one of our key allies, and that there are real efforts being made to avoid a misunderstanding or miscalculation, because I do think this is a very dangerous circumstance and situation, end quote. Well, the administration recently completed a review of North Korean policy. New policies under consideration are imposing so-called secondary sanctions on the North that would be designed to cut off supplies of missile and nuclear goods from places such as China and Russia. A U.N. panel of experts revealed in a report in February that debris obtained from a North Korean missile flight Uh, test last year included Chinese and Russian components. So on the one hand, China is uh, trying to control its neighbor. On the other hand, uh, giving them the very 
um, elements that will help them reach their goal. President Trump uh, pressed China's leader Xi Jinping during the recent summit meetings in Florida to pressure North Korea into giving up its nuclear arms and long-range missiles as it celebrated its anniversary earlier this year. Uh, There had been uh, announcements from the North that they were going to test fire a nuclear weapon. That did not happen, which uh, should be taken as something of a success, uh, many are suggesting. President, uh, or rather, during the uh, meeting uh, with uh, President Xi, the Chinese leader, uh, Xi told our president that China does not have the leverage over the Kim Jong-un regime in Pyongyang that the U.S. government believes it has, according to the White House official. China has limited purchases of coal from North Korea, but so far has not used its ability to restrict fuel oil exports uh, to pressure the regime. North Korea relies on China for as much as 90 percent of its foreign trade. White House officials and congressional aides sought to play down the significance of the briefing that comes amid some heightened tensions, but all the officials said the threat from North Korea remains serious. Senior administration officials said of the session that uh, had been scheduled for some time and is not in response to a particular event. I think it's really an expression of how seriously the president is taking this and that he wants to engage with Congress on it. Well, the aircraft carrier strike group led by the USS Carl Vinson is expected to arrive near the Korean Peninsula in the next day. And a U.S. missile submarine also has been deployed to the area. The U.S. Uh, Air Force Strike Command also could announced that the U.S. long-range nuclear missile was test-fired at the Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, on Wednesday. Day. The command called that test a Minutemen 3 intercontinental ballistic missile, an important demonstration of our nation's nuclear deterrent capability. The deployment comes as U.S. intelligence agencies are watching closely North Korea for signs of another underground nuclear test or long-range missile test. Again, this uh, meeting of all of the U.S. senators yesterday briefing them on North Korea. Well, House Republicans have unveiled a stopgap bill to keep the government open past a a shutdown deadline of midnight on Friday. House Appropriations Committee Chairman Rodney uh, Freelingheisen uh, says the one-week measure would buy time to wrap up talks on a $1 trillion-plus catch-all spending bill covering the rest of the fiscal year. It's the center of the bipartisan talks on Capitol Hill. He says those negotiations are going well. Hmm. Well, the temporary bill is likely to come to a House vote on Friday in an expectation the Senate would immediately send it to the president for his signature. Talks on the larger spending bill have progressed in fits and starts with the White House backing away from demands that it include money to begin construction of a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. They have not uh, withdrawn their commitment, but rather will postpone the funding of it. Other stumbling blocks also remain, including agreeing on health care funding. On that front, the White House has assured lawmakers it will continue making payments to insurers under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. That's a reversal of the president who had threatened to withdraw the money. Both House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and a senior administration official confirmed the move, which could both provide stability to the individual insurance market and remove the issue as an impediment to the larger spending measure. Well, the so-called cost-sharing payments help lower-income people with out-of-pocket medical expenses, but Mr. Trump had uh, threatened to withhold them as leverage. That sparked a fierce backlash among Democrats, such as Pelosi, who responded with a threat to bring down the entire larger spending bill if the threat were carried out. Pelosi and White House Budget Director Mick uh, Mulvaney sparred over the issue in back-and-forth statements on Wednesday. Apparently, at this point, that is has been uh, removed from the bargaining, the negotiations, and uh, presumably things will move forward as a consequence. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some political news and anticipating a conversation with David Brog, who is the founding uh, executive of um, uh, Christians United for Israel and the author of Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. Republican leaders in the House received a boost to their attempts to repeal and replace Obamacare yesterday at the Freedom Caucus. That influential block of conservatives announced its support for the revised plan. Now, that doesn't say the moderates are on board, but that gives you at least an indication of one faction. The group of more than 30 lawmakers said it would support a new version of the bill called the American Health Care Act. The revision includes an amendment crafted by the Freedom Caucus chairman Mark Meadows uh, and Tuesday group co-chairman Tom MacArthur. The MacArthur Amendment will grant states the ability to to uh, repeal cost driving aspects of Obamacare's uh, left in place under the original American Health Care Act. The Freedom Caucus said in a statement, and while the revised version still does not fully repeal Obamacare, we are prepared to support it to keep the to keep our promise to the American people to lower health care costs for the Freedom Caucus to take an official position on legislation. Its uh, rules call for 80 percent of the members to agree the culmination of weeks of negotiations between Meadows and MacArthur. The compromise amendment aims to reunite the uh, House centrists and conservative Republican wing behind the health care bill. And with their legislation, GOP lawmakers and the president are working to fulfill a major campaign promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's at least a portion of a portion of that. Trump initially promised to dismantle the health care law in his first day in office, but disagreement among Republican lawmakers had delayed efforts in Congress to do so. One would have thought over the last eight years they would have had some sort of consensus, but that simply was not the case. Lawmakers received the text of the amendment last night, but a rough outline of the plan was leaked to the press last week. The deal takes aim at uh, regulations implemented under the president's, the former president's uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, considered one of the major domestic achievements, uh, his achievements. Under the amendment, states can apply for federal waivers to opt out of Obamacare's essential health benefit requirement, a list of 10 services that insurance plans are required to cover. The measure leaves in place a provision of Obamacare that prohibits insurers from denying coverage to patients with pre-existing conditions, but allows states to waive its community ratings rule, which ban insurers from charging sick people more than healthy ones. States could opt out of the community ratings rule only if they implement a program designed to minimize costs costs for people uh, for patients rather with pre-existing conditions such as a high risk pool. Now, high risk pools subsidized by the government are insurance pools for patients with pre-existing conditions. Uh, also, only patients who fail to maintain continuous coverage could be charged more by insurers. Well, the amendment from uh, MacArthur and Meadows, the conservative and centrist uh, branch of the Republican Party, to assuage the concerns of House conservatives who along with a block of centrist Republicans opposed the GOP's leadership's original health care bill. And though Republican leaders now have the support of the Freedom Caucus, it's not clear if the revised plan will have the backing of centrist Republicans who are not in the group that was uh, instrumental in this latest version. Members of the centrist Tuesday group told reporters uh, yesterday that they needed more time to look over the amendment. The revised bill has uh, swayed influential conservative groups, however, Club for Growth, uh, Freedom Works. Uh, which both opposed the original bill, announced their support for the amendment and said they would back the bill with its addition. And while we're still short of full repeal, this latest agreement would give states the chance to opt out of some Obamacare's uh, costliest regulations, opening the way for greater choice, lower insurance premiums, according to the president of Club for Growth, 
uh, David McIntosh in a prepared statement. It's a solution, he went on to say, we've supported for weeks and the time to move forward is now. Well, Heritage Action for America, which is the lobbying affiliate of the Heritage Foundation, backed away from its key vote against the health care bill. In a formal statement, uh, Mike Needham, the CEO of Heritage Action, said this, and I quote, To be clear, this is not full repeal, and it's not what Republicans campaigned on or outlined in the Better Way agenda. The amendment does, however, represent important progress in what has been a disastrous process. Given the extreme divides in the Republican Party, allowing Texas and South Carolina to make different decisions on health insurance regulations than New York and New Jersey may be the only way forward. End quote. Well, discussions over the health care bill began early last month after Republican leaders revealed their plan to repeal and replace Obamacare, a years long promise to voters. We'll follow this as it moves forward and presumably it will move forward. By the way, uh, the White House told congressional leaders uh, yesterday as well that the administration will continue making Obamacare cost sharing payments, eliminating the biggest sticking point as lawmakers rush to pass the 2017 spending bill and to avert a government shutdown that's looming at the end of the week. But as I mentioned earlier, it looks very likely that they have uh, a stopgap measure that will extend by at least a week. Uh, the deadline. President Trump and the leaders of Mexico and Canada, our arch enemies, not, uh, agreed Wednesday to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement. The White House said, uh, though the president warned Thursday that he'd be willing to terminate the pact if they can't strike a fair deal. It's my privilege to bring NAFTA up to date through renegotiation, Trump said in a statement. Uh, late Wednesday. It's an honor to deal with both Mexican President Enrique Peña Nido and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And I believe that at the end, uh, the result will make all three countries stronger and better. Well, the White House added that Trump agreed not to terminate NAFTA at this time and that all three leaders agreed to proceed swiftly according to their required internal procedures to enable the renegotiation of the trade deal to the benefit of all three countries. But President Trump tweeted early today that his uh, cooperation is contingent on a fair deal being reached. I received calls from the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Canada asking to renegotiate NAFTA rather than terminate. I agreed, he tweeted, subject to the fact that if we do not reach a fair deal for all, we will then terminate NAFTA. Relationships um, are good, uh, are good deal, very possible. I'm not sure what that meant, but that was a quote. Well, the Mexican government uh, confirmed the conversation in a statement issued late Wednesday, saying the leaders agreed on the uh, uh, the convenience of maintaining the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, with some negotiated differences. And Trump repeated... um, Uh, repeatedly railed against the two decades old trade agreement on the campaign trail, describing it as a disaster. Well, it's apparently a disaster worth maintaining at least for a little while until something, uh, according to the president's judgment is considered better. Earlier in the day, sources said that the white house had drafted a notification signaling the United States intention of withdrawing from NAFTA, indicating his seriousness. The document would have given the leaders of Canada and Mexico six months notice of the administration's intention to exit from the agreement. On Monday, the administration announced it would slap hefty tariffs on softwood lumber being imported from Canada 
He's also been uh, railing against changes in in Canadian milk um, uh, product pricing that he says are hurting the American dairy industry. He told the Associated Press in an interview last week that he plans to either renegotiate or terminate NAFTA, which he and other critics blame for wiping out U.S. manufacturing jobs because it allowed companies to move factories to Mexico to take advantage of low-wage labor. I'm very upset with NAFTA, he went on to say, among other things. Well, the administration last month submitted a vague set of guidelines to Congress for renegotiating uh, the agreement, uh, disappointing those who were expecting Trump to demand a major overhaul. Apparently, that is not what he submitted. In an eight-page draft letter to Congress, acting U.S. Trade Representative Stephen Vaughn wrote that the administration intended to start talking with Mexico and China uh, and Canada rather about making changes to the pact, which took effect in 1994. The letter spelled out few details and stuck with broad principles, but it appeared to keep much of the existing agreement in place, including private tribunals that allow companies to challenge national laws on the ground that they it, uh, inhibit uh, trade, a provision that critics say allows companies to get around environmental and labor laws. Uh, reports Wednesday of the possible um, uh, move drew objections from both uh, from some in Congress, including Senator John McCain, both Republicans and Democrats. McCain said withdrawing from NAFTA would be a disaster for Arizona jobs and economy. He tweeted, uh, "Well, there was a hashtag in there, by the way, a couple of them." Um, he went on to say that the president shouldn't abandon this vital trade agreement. So uh, there will be some uh, back and forth in Congress in the Senate over uh, this agreement and whether or not it is either gotten rid of or if it is amended. We'll continue to follow that story. Coming up next, we're going to talk with David Brog. He is the uh, founding executive of Christians United for Israel. He's a graduate of Princeton University, Harvard Law School, um, and he served as chief of staff for Senator Arlen Specter, staff director for the Senate Judiciary Committee. He also worked as an executive at America Online and practiced corporate law in both Israel and here in the United States. He's the author of In Defense of Faith, the Judeo-Christian Idea and the Struggle for Humanity and Standing with Israel, Why Christians Support the Jewish State. He joins us to talk about his latest book, Reclaiming uh, Israel, in which he makes the case that uh, no history is so disputed as the history of Israel, so misunderstood and deliberately distorted. So we're going to talk with him about that uh, in just a few moments. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Nancy Flory. She's a writer for The Stream. Uh, they had a rather interesting, uh, lengthy piece that had a, a series of videos that went along with it on the pain of infertility. They included a couple of couples who had difficulty bearing children because one of them was infertile, but they also included a um, a gay couple, two men who were part of the infertile story, which was rather peculiar. Um, It's not clear that either of them was infertile. And if given the circumstances in which one conceives, uh, neither of them would have any difficulty. So anyway, we're going to talk with Nancy Flory about this attempt at redefining what infertility means. And uh, more importantly, whether or not uh, insurance companies should be forced to pay for um, those who want to have children but choose not to do it the way that children generally come, trying to be tactful. We're also going to talk with Steve Malloy. He's uh, going to talk about uh, the Obama administration EPA's endangerment finding for greenhouse gases uh, and the uh, apparent uh, possible collusion and junk science that uh, were the determining factors in uh, their judgment. We'll get into that later in the uh, in the next hour as well. But again, coming up next, we'll talk with David Brog, reclaiming Israel's history, roots, rights, and the uh, struggle for peace. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. With the new administration, that means America will focus on repairing relationships with Israel for the first time in some 25 years. It also means the left will be working harder than ever to undermine those efforts. Well, in his new book, Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace, Christians United for Israel Executive Director David Brog dismantles the propaganda that has falsely painted Israel as the violent occupier and reveals the truth about Israel's history. You won't hear it from the mainstream media. Uh, he frankly admits to Israel's sins, both large and small, but he also notes that in any fair-minded analysis, these have been far outweighed by Israel's commitment to Western values, including freedom, democracy, and human rights. Uh, there is rising anti-Semitism and the aggressive delegitimization of Israel, which makes reclaiming Israel's history a must-read. Well, David Brog is a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard Law School. He is the executive director of the Maccabee Task Force and was the founding executive director of Christians United for Israel. He served as chief of staff to Senator Arlen Specter, staff director of the Senate Judiciary Committee as well. He also worked as an executive at uh, America Online and practiced corporate law in both Israel and here in the the United States. He is the author of In Defense of Faith, The Judeo-Christian Idea and the Struggle for Humanity and Standing with Israel, Why Christians Support the Jewish State. He joins us now to talk about his book, Reclaiming Israel, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. David Brog, thank you so much for joining us. Well, hi, Georgine. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, let me ask you if you are optimistic that uh, the United States relationship with Israel will inevitably uh, improve under the, the current administration? Well, uh, it would be hard for it not to improve. Um, and I'll say this for the new administration. They look at the Middle East and they recognize um, some fundamentals, that Israel is our best friend in that region and that Iran is the greatest threat to our interests in that region. That's already an excellent start. Now, the title of the book is Reclaiming Israel's History. Uh, there's a reason for that title. There's a, a growing misunderstanding or there's a growing unwillingness to acknowledge elements of Israel's history. What's behind this uh, distortion, and why is it important for us to have a clear understanding of its, uh, of its actual history? Well, it, it, there's a phenomenon that's only picking up steam, and we've seen it on the college campuses for years, but, but what, what starts on the campuses never ends there. And so it spills over into our churches and synagogues and communities, and it spills over into government. Uh, the, the, the views of Israel that were prevalent on campus a decade ago, we, we saw uh, prevalent in the last administration. And these, the, the view of Israel that's emerging is, is the result of a lot of myths and a lot of lies and a lot of distortion. But, but what the claim is made over and over again to the point where people accept it, that Israel is the problem in the Middle East. Israel is the obstacle to peace. Israel is the occupier. Israel is the human rights abuser. Over and over again, and students who don't know better believe it. And this includes evangelical young people. This includes Jewish young people who come home from college and say, Mom, Dad, I know you love Israel, but I can't support Israel because Israel stands against all of my Jewish values or all of my Christian values. So we need to reclaim Israel's history, because the good news is this. When you know the truth about Israel, when you know the facts about Israel's history and Israel's conflict with her neighbors, Israel emerges as not a perfect country, but as an admirable country, a country upholding the highest of our Judeo-Christian values in a very tough neighborhood, a country we can all be proud to support. 
but it's only through sharing this history and sharing these facts and sharing these truths that that we can actually convince the next generation to support Israel because they're being fed a whole bunch of lies in rapid fire. Now, what are some of the most common uh, commonly told lies about Israel? You use the word lies as opposed to misunderstanding or misconception, yes. suggesting there's a deliberate campaign to distort Israel's history. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And, and you know, these days, um, young people don't like the word lie. I use that word on campuses, and they say, come on, uh, David, uh, uh, lie, it's, it's harsh. They're just different narratives, right? Everyone has their narrative. There's the Israeli narrative, and there's the Palestinian narrative, and we really shouldn't be too quick to choose between them. Um, I'm old-fashioned. Uh, if your narrative is based upon things that never happened, or, or claims that simply are, are, are not based in fact, then, then I will use that word lie. And there is, there's an over, you know, just like there is a terrorist war against Israel, people strapping bombs to their bodies and blowing up Israeli restaurants, cafes, and buses, there's also a propaganda war against Israel. Israel's enemies are lots of things, but they're not stupid. They know that Israel needs a strong relationship with the U.S. to thrive and survive. It's true. And so they know if they can turn the U.S. against Israel, if they can weaken the U.S.-Israel alliance, they can do enormous, enormous damage to Israel. That's also true. Well, if, you, if your goal is, is, is to kill a name Israelis, great. Strap a bomb to your body, go into an Israeli restaurant, blow yourself up. But if your goal is to end the U.S.-Israel relationship, then go to the college campuses and lie about Israel. And that's exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of lies. Um, I'll just start with the most prevalent. Uh, and the most prevalent myth is this one, that if Israel wanted peace tomorrow, Israel could have peace tomorrow. All they need to do is end their quote-unquote occupation of the West Bank, pull their troops out of the West Bank, and let the Palestinians have their own state there. Uh, and for students who don't know better, you know, you freeze the frame today, you see Israeli troops, the Israeli military in the West Bank, it makes perfect sense, sure. Israel should leave, let the Palestinians have a state, and they'll live side by side in peace and harmony. When you know that's not true, when you know that that's a false explanation of the conflict, is when you know the history, and you know that Israel's actually done that. It's offered the Palestinians a state of their own. In all of the West Bank and Gaza, half of Jerusalem, not once, not twice, but on five separate occasions. And each and every time, the Palestinians have said no. And very often, they've said no violently in the form of bombs and stabbings and attacks. And when you know that history, you realize, no, Israel is not the source of the conflict. Israel is not the problem. Israel couldn't just have peace tomorrow. Uh, the problem is something deeper, and that is Palestinian unwillingness to accept the existence of a Jewish state in any size, shape, or form. There are moderate Palestinians, there are wonderful Palestinians who really would love two states for two people living in peace and harmony next to one another. The problem is they're not in power, and the problem is lately they haven't even been a majority. Palestinian leaders have turned down Israel's peace offers. They've turned them down violently, and they've turned them down for one reason. They, they'd rather not have their own state if it means accepting Israel as a Jewish state. They're committed to the destruction of Israel. They think all the land belongs to them. One of the things you um, point out in the book in, in reflecting on the history of Israel is how the Romans invented the word Palestine uh, to sever the connection between the Jewish people and their land and how subsequent conquerors doubled down on this strategy. Talk a bit about that history, the origin of the word, 
and how it's been used uh, even in modern times. Well, uh, among other myths about Israel is this idea that Israel is a, some sort of consolation prize to the Jews because of the Holocaust. So European powers gave European Jews land in the Arab Middle East as, as, as consolation, you know, comp- you know, compensation for the Holocaust, and that Jews never had a connection to that land. You know, that too is a myth, and anyone who reads their Bible knows the Jewish connection to this land goes back 3,000, almost 3,500 years. And the Jews lived there, lived out the stories of the Bible there, um, and then they rebelled against Rome. And uh, the Romans didn't much like that. They, uh, they killed a lot of Jews, they exiled a lot more, and they decided, you know what, we're going to rename this country in a way that severs the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. The land was called Judea in Roman times. It was the province of Judea. And when, when a land is called Judea, you kind of know who lives there. You might as well call it Jewland. Uh, the Romans said, no, no more. We're going to change the name. And just for spite, we're going to call this land after your traditional enemies, the biblical enemies, the Philistines. And they changed the name from Judea to Philistina, which became Palestina, which became Palestine. But that tactic denying the Jewish connection to the land of Israel as a way of destroying and delegitimizing Israel um, has been picked up by Israel's enemies throughout the ages. In fact, you know, as recently as the, the present day, when Israel made the fourth of its recent peace offers to the Palestinians, I mentioned five times, when it made the fourth of these peace offers to Palestinians, uh, it was at Camp David in the year 2000. And Bill Clinton was there with Israeli Prime Minister Barak and the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. And Arafat, as Clinton later said, Arafat was there for two weeks and turned down every peace offer. But towards the end, he did something very interesting. He turned to President Clinton and said to Clinton, you know, there never was a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Why would Arafat say something that absurd to Clinton, who comes from a Christian background and knows very well there was a Jewish temple in Jerusalem? That's where Jesus uh, turned over the money changers' tables. That's where he taught. That's where he prayed. Well, he, he said it to Clinton because it's critical to his worldview. If Yasser Arafat doesn't deny the connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, if he acknowledges it, well, then he's on the slippery slope, isn't he? Because then he might have to acknowledge that Jews have a right to live there, too, and Jews have a right to a country there, too. And that's something he could never allow to happen. So this, he's, he's got to double down. He's got to deny this Jewish connection to the land of Israel, continuing in the tradition the Romans started. We're going to continue our conversation, but do need to take a quick break. We're talking about the book, Reclaiming Israel's Histories, History rather, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. David Brog, my guest, will be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. David Brog is my guest. In the book, um, you write about how uh, there is a, a misunderstanding about Jewish immigration to to Palestine, as the Romans initially called it, and that they re- displaced Arabs. Um, uh, and uh, and you suggest, however, that um, the Jews have been there for some three thousand years, despite centuries of of Muslim persecution. Address this notion that. Uh, there was a, a an insurgence of of Jews into the area, displacing those who had been there before them. Well, it's it's I think a common notion, and it's 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 a bit of a silly notion that I, I guess 
Palestine could only hold so many people, uh, is the premise. You know, there's no such thing as a growth. It can only hold so many people. And so there's this idea that when Jews started returning in their most modern wave of return in the early 1900s under the British mandate for Palestine, uh, Jews have been returning throughout the centuries, but the most modern wave of return, um, after World War I when Britain ruled the area and let Jews come back home, um, there's this idea, Jews came back, and I guess every Jew that, that came back had to take the home of an Arab, and an Arab got displaced. Um, the exact opposite is true. When you look at the population records, and these are British population records, during the peak years of Jewish immigration uh, to Palestine under, under the British from 1920 uh, until 1937, the Arab population of Palestine didn't decrease. It dramatically increased. It increased at fantastic rates, uh, far, far in excess of the Arab population growth in, in, in the surrounding countries. And more than that, when you dig down and look at these statistics, you realize something. You look at the cities in Palestine to, to which Jews were not returning, cities like Hebron or Nablus, the Arab population grew at around 40% during these years. You look at the cities to which Jews were going, Jerusalem, Haifa, Jaffa, Tel Aviv, there the Arab population growth was tremendous, 220%, 180%, 160%. So it was exactly those areas to which Jews were returning that the Arab population did not shrink but grew dramatically. Why? Because the Jews were creating so many economic opportunities that Arabs streamed in, both from surrounding Arab countries and from those parts of Palestine to which Jews were not coming. So we see as often as the case, you take a myth about Israel, you study it, you put it under the microscope, the exact opposite often turns out to be true. You make the point that uh, most of Palestine's Arabs uh, never identified themselves as Palestinians until after the 1967 war. Maybe you can talk a bit about the 67 war and why that change in self-identification took place at that time. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's a new people we're dealing with, and I think it's important. I think people have a sense that uh, the Jews uh, wanted the country, so they went to a country called Palestine, conquered it, expelled its residents, and took it for themselves. So as we discussed, you know, it's not true at all. Jews have always lived there. Jews have always returned to there. Jews have, have rights there, too. Uh, and during their years of return, there, there was never a country called Palestine. This had been a small province in the Ottoman Empire, then the British took it over in something called the British Mandate for Palestine. But there was never an independent country called Palestine. The identity is very new. And that's because really until the British Mandate for Palestine, uh, 1920, uh, the local Arabs didn't really have a sense of themselves as Palestinians or even as Arabs. They considered themselves Ottoman subjects. Uh, during the British Mandate for Palestine, it was a time when these Ottoman subjects had to find new identities. And so they took on a variety of different identities. At first, they considered themselves Southern Syrians. The only geographic entity uh, that, was, that was relevant to local Arabs was the, the entity of Syria. They said, we're part of a large country called Syria, the southern part, maybe we're Syrians. Um, later, another ideology called Pan-Arabism, uh, Pan-Arab nationalism, began to grow. That was the idea that all of the Arabic speakers from Morocco to Iraq were part of one large Arab world and one single Arab people. Uh, in time, other identities came. The Jordanians conquered the West Bank in 1948. A lot of the Arabs who lived there identified themselves as Jordanians. Um, there were all of these conflicting identities. It wasn't until 1967 when Israel liberated this land from Jordan 
that Jordanian identity ceased to be a competing factor. It wasn't until 1967 when Israel defeated the top pan-Arab nationalist, uh, President Nasser of Egypt, that this idea of pan-Arabism, belonging to one large Arab people, uh, ceased to be a competing factor. Uh, and the Syrian identity had ceased to be a competing factor years before. So after 1967, these Arabs that had lived in this area, that had traded hands and traded identities, finally said, okay, uh, here we are in this territory. Uh, we want to uh, have our own identity, and uh, we want to seize an identity focused on our particular geography. And they started calling themselves Palestinians. The amazing thing is that the Jews, the Israelis, a, a 3,500-year-old people, looked at this new people, uh, just decided that we're Palestinians now, and basically said, welcome, you know, ahlan v'sahlan, take half the land, have it as your own country, live side by side with us in peace. Uh, unfortunately, that offer was turned down and, re- and repeatedly turned down. I want to talk about the extraordinary links to which uh, Israel's military goes to protect Palestinian civilians. But before we do that, I wanted to invite you to talk a bit about the uh, largely untold story about how the leader of Palestine's Arabs collaborated with the Nazis uh, in uh, murdering the Jews in Europe before they could uh, reach their ancestral homeland. Yeah, well, it's a tragic story and and not well known. But as we've been discussing, the Palestinians are a new people. And they, the first leader they had was under the British mandate. The British, you know, had control of this area and called it the British mandate for Palestine. And the guy who led uh, Palestine's Arabs at that time was named Hajamin al-Husseini, uh, but he was known by his title, the Mufti of Jerusalem. Mufti is a senior uh, Islamic religious leader, um, like a bishop. So he was the Mufti of Jerusalem. And he didn't like the fact that the British were letting Jews return to their homeland. Um, he protested, and they, they, they did some economic uh, protests. They, they started an armed revolt against Britain. Uh, during their armed revolt against Britain, they also attacked their Jewish neighbors and started murdering Israeli civilians. Terrorism is nothing new to the Palestinian cause. But when that failed, when Britain defeated him, he seized upon a new idea, which is if I can't get Britain to stop letting Jews come back to their homeland... Maybe I could help Hitler kill the Jews in Europe before they can ever make it back home. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, you know, there's no two ways about it. He moved to Berlin. He met with Hitler shortly after his move. Uh, and he began broadcasting Nazi propaganda in Arabic throughout World War II. And it went beyond that. When Hitler needed more people because he was losing the war, the Mufti of Jerusalem personally went and recruited divisions, entire Muslim battalions and divisions, both in Europe, in Bosnia and Albania, uh, but also in North Africa, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, organizing entire Muslim divisions to go fight alongside the Nazis. Uh, and he made it clear. He, he met with Eichmann and the people who designed the Nazi Final Solution, applauded their work, and said, when you're done exterminating uh, the Jews of Europe, I have a favor to ask. I want you to come and do the same to the Jews of Palestine. Not an auspicious beginning uh, to the Jewish-Palestinian relationship. Tragically, his successors followed the Mufti's footsteps and advocated terrorism and violence rather than mutual recognition and peace. That's why we've got a conflict down to the present day. You write about the links to which Israel's military goes to protect Palestinian civilians, and some of our listeners might scratch their head. Um, you make the point that there's a high price that's being paid by Israel's soldiers uh, for that, uh, that morality. Explain what you mean by that and how you put that in the context of the conflict that we often see highlighted on our television screams and in uh, in news stories. 
Sure. You know, I'll, I'll give one example, Georgie. You know, and people see this on TV all the time. Israel left Gaza in 2007, pulled out every soldier and civilian in the hopes that this would start a virtuous cycle towards peace. We'll give the Palestinians the strip of land. We'll let them govern it. They'll govern it well. We'll, we'll, we'll develop their economy, and, and everyone will see pieces in their interest, and then we can leave more, give them more land and build their state. Tragically, though, um, Hamas, a terrorist group, was firing rockets into Israel from Gaza uh, before Israel left. And Israel left and said, okay, now we shouldn't have a reason to fire rockets at us now. Let's, let's start this virtuous cycle of peace. Rocket fire from Gaza into Israel did not decrease when Israel pulled out. It dramatically increased to the point where that literally thousands, thousands of mortars and rockets were being fired from Hamas into Israel. So Israel eventually belatedly did what any country would do when rockets are being fired at their cities. They went in to stop the rocket fire. But Hamas, being, being a terrorist group, not only targets Israeli civilians with their rockets, they fire the rockets from and hide the rockets in civilian areas. Because they know if Israel, God forbid, kills a civilian in trying to stop the rocket fire, they can call in the press, show the dead civilian, and say, look, Israel is a war criminal. That's exactly what they do. But because Israel is a moral army, trying to live up to the highest of our Judeo-Christian morality in a tough situation. They take dramatic efforts to try to limit civilian casualties. They've got to stop the rocket fire. And Hamas is firing the rockets from civilian areas, storing the rockets in civilian areas, so they've got to go into civilian areas to fight. But here's what they do. Before they go into any neighborhood, they blanket the neighborhood with leaflets, saying, we're coming in, innocent civilians, please leave. If you take the following routes during the following times, you'll be safe. And that's exactly right. Israel protects certain routes for certain periods of time so that anyone who wants to leave can safely leave. But they don't stop there. Then when they go into a neighborhood, if they have a specific building they want to target because missiles are stored there or are being fired from there, they actually call the cell phone or text the cell phone of every resident of that building saying, we're coming such and such a time. You had better leave. It is not safe. Well, the Palestinians know that Israel doesn't want to harm civilians, and they know that the Israelis are coming to particular buildings because the Israelis leaflet and call. So what do they do? They tell the civilians of these buildings to go to the roof. They say, you'll be safe. Israel will never bomb this building if you're seen on the roof. And they're right, by the way. Israel never would bomb a building if civilians are seen on the roof. So they go up to the roof, and Israel's had to abort mission after a mission because civilian Palestinian civilians are on the roof. Well, I tell you, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. The book is titled Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. I think our conversation illustrates how significant this book would be to help us better understand Israel. David Brog, thanks for joining us. Thank you, George. Appreciate, appreciate it very it. much. I apologize for that, but uh, the clock ticks. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, on April 22nd, USA Today published an article, according to my next guest, and I've been there and read it, uh, titled The Psychology of Infertility. Now, lots of us are familiar with the, the pain associated with infertility. The article highlighted three couples that couldn't have children. The couples chose to have a child through in vitro fertilization, adoption, and surrogacy. Again, the, the subject was uh, infertility. And while music played in the background, the couples talked about the trouble they'd had conceiving. These were, there was only one problem, my guest points out. One couple was made up of two men. We don't have a uterus, they explained. Which begs the question, why are you in an article about infertility? Well, here to talk with us about that 
is uh, Nancy Flory. She's a writer for The Stream. Uh, she asked the question, are two gay men infertile? Well, the answer is yes, according to USA Today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This seems a little bit absurd. What was the point that USA Today was uh, attempting to make? Really, it was about, it, it was just this flowery article about uh, people who couldn't conceive and the struggles that they go through and all of that. And that is true for heterosexual couples. But when you're talking about gay men or lesbians, you're not talking about infertility uh, most of the time. Um, you're talking about incompatibility. So it was frustrating to read this and, and have this hit me. They are not infertile. Why are they there? Um, yes, it was. It, it, it should be one of those uh, very obvious on the face of it kind of uh, stories, but it, it, they're trying to hide the fact that this is uh, a gay couple that are really, they're really not infertile. As a matter of fact, one of the couples actually donated his sperm. For the surrogate that they eventually <laughs> use. Exactly. Proving that infertility exactly. was not the issue. You write that infertility and incompatibility are not the same thing. Most insurance companies get this. That's why they refuse to perform infertility treatment with same-sex couples. Might uh, one of the motives be to challenge the notion that insurance companies should not uh, provide that kind of uh, help to same-sex couples who are not physically and biologically capable of reproducing under the circumstances they have chosen uh, to associate in? Well, part of this article, when it when it comes to the insurance and all of that, uh, most of that wasn't in the main article, but um, it could be. It could be that they're trying to kind of make it a little more palatable um, and a little more acceptable. And as it is right now, some insurance companies will pay for it, um, but a lot of them will not. And uh, United Healthcare was one that, that did not treat a lesbian couple. Um, because they defined infertility as the inability to achieve pregnancy after 12 months of unprotected heterosexual intercourse, which makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> but um, some insurance companies will treat uh, after they have determined that the, the lesbian couple is infertile, but they have to go through treatment uh, the testing to determine whether or not they're infertile. And some are even complaining about that, saying that that's the standard that they have to uh, rise to, that um, a, a heterosexual couple would not. Um, but in fact, if, they, if the doctors do not know they're uh, infertile, whether they're infertile, they've got to test them. And insurance companies are not obligated to pay for that until they get that testing. Um, you make the point that um, to identify the problem of infertility with a universal fact of biology is an insult to couples really struggling with uh, with infertility. Um, do you think this is a, a, an attempt to further normalize the notion that same-sex uh, couples and heterosexual couples <clears throat> are essentially the same, they face the same uh, struggles, mm-hmm. and in this case with infertility, which is a word that doesn't apply under the circumstances of their relationship? I, I do. I think it is a way that, that it's, you know, certain groups of people are trying to normalize this and make it seem seem like something, just an everyday thing, oh, they're, they're, they are the same. Um, but they're not. And it's just biology. It's science. It's not a matter of, um, you know, making fun of someone or bullying someone. It's just science. They, they aren't the same. And no matter how many ways you put it, you know, it's not going to work. You know, it's interesting to me, we're at a season in which 
um, the virtues of science are being emphasized, and yet in certain areas, mm-hmm. science is uh, is denied. With, for example, um, uh, uh, trans people, science does not matter when you self-identify mm-hmm. as something you are not. Uh, and in this case, right. science doesn't matter. So it's a, a bit of a schizophrenic approach to dealing with uh, mm-hmm. what science and biology tell us and what we choose to believe and do. Oh, it is, it is definitely that. You described it very well, schizophrenic. We do want to believe certain things about science and, and reject others. And uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We just had that march for science, but it really... In a lot of ways, it's not about the science. It's about what makes me feel good and what, um, you know, it, it's not looking at the biology. It's like, I, I'm gay, but I'm going to make it normal for you to, you know, think of me as, think of gay as normal. Um, so I do think there's this push. I've seen it in other areas. Uh, when you were talking about the trans and people, you were talking, you made me think of a, another story that I wrote about the, the red crayon that identifies as blue. And uh, in no matter how many ways you say it, they're still going to have um, the the male genes or the female genes. It, 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 it's not going to change. Well, it's interesting um, because you are considered a Neanderthal knuckle-dragging uh, knucklehead if you don't embrace certain things that science affirm. And you are somehow, mm-hmm. um, I suppose, the same thing if you hold to certain elements of what science clearly affirms. So, again, it's, a, it's rather confusing uh, if you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to stay mm-hmm. uh, current with what the norms are supposed to be. And truth somewhere is, is lost in the middle of it all. I know. It's frustrating. Well, I appreciate so much your talking with us, Nancy, and for uh, drawing our attention to this, um, this effort. Uh, which I think just highlights the confusion that we find in our culture today. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you so much. Again, Nancy Flory is a a writer for The Stream on this particular story that was sort of peculiar. I'm not sure they had a a serious agenda, but it was just peculiar to have put these three couples in a story about infertility when it would apply to two. And in the case of these two men, infertility was not an issue, even if they had chosen partners of the opposite sex. So just a, a peculiar thing altogether. Well, um, we're going to talk um, later in the program with Steve Malloy. Uh, we're going to, in fact, talk about um, the uh, science uh, march that's coming up this weekend. They're two bookend events, and we'll talk a little bit about the EPA and junk science that they have relied upon in some of their decision-making and the frustration that uh, that raises for lots of people who care. Also, we're going to talk about um, the fact that Ann Coulter canceled her speech, decided not to just show up in um, Berkeley today, as she had threatened earlier, uh, whether or not you agree or disagree with her, um, the the fact that free speech has been on the chopping block is is a growing concern among both um, the right and the left, or at least some on the right and the left. From one story on the Hill, they point out that she said the conservative group sponsoring her remarks withdrew their support on Tuesday, citing security. Uh, concerns. I looked over my shoulder and my allies had joined the other team, she told Reuters. It's a sad day for free speech, she told the New York Times. Everyone has, uh, everyone who should believe in free speech fought against uh, it and ran away. Young America's Foundation, the group sponsoring her event, pulled out, citing safety concerns. Berkeley made it impossible to hold a lecture due to the lack of assurances for protections from uh, foreseeable violence from unrestrained leftist agitators. The group said in a statement criticizing the university police's uh, stand down uh, their policy and charging that Berkeley should be ashamed for creating this hostile atmosphere. John Ziegler writing for 
uh, mediate says that while many on the left are irrationally uh, rejoice and some on the right uh, just who just don't like her personally will simply shrug. The reality is that all of us should be con- um, should be condemning uh, this development, whether we realize it or not. We all just lost a little bit of our most formally cherished and important freedom. And that is, of course, free speech. Meanwhile, police are prepared for trouble uh, from the left, even without Coulter's appearance. And they, apparently they threatened to uh, I, I'm not sure what they're going to disrupt or what the point would be. When we take a break and come back, we'll talk about Portland protesters who are now calling for reinstating the parade that they themselves were responsible for having canceled by threatening violence. That and a, a statement made by a professor, Everett Piper, will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in this hour, we'll talk with Steve Malloy about the EPA and uh, the standards they use, some collusion, some junk science to uh, come up with their endangerment findings for greenhouse gases. Um, I was uh, commenting a few moments ago about the uh, fact that Ann Coulter had to cancel after uh, those who sponsored and asked her to come uh, had to cancel her speech in Berkeley, California. That was once the bastion of free speech and free expression. It apparently is no longer. Uh, she did not uh, go to the event, as she threatened earlier, uh, even though the invitation had been withdrawn because the campus simply said, well, we can't guarantee uh, your safety. Well, here in Portland, we have uh, it's not quite the same, but uh, in Portland, protesters are calling for the reinstatement of the parade that they were responsible for having canceled over the threat of protest and violence against the GOP celebrants. Um, I didn't even know about this Portland parade. It's sort of the uh, Portland Rose Society uh, parade that precedes everything else. It, it goes down 82nd Street, and apparently it, it's a big deal. Uh, I'm not sure everybody knows about the 82nd Avenue of uh, Rose's parade that uh, is only about, what, 11 years, uh, 11 years old. It's been canceled this year. The uh, Portland anti-fascist groups, and I'm quoting now from the Washington Times, they've called for bringing back the uh, s- the Saturday Rose Parade, even though uh, fears of violence from protesters uh, are what prompted the organizers to nix the popular event in the first place. Well, the Direct Action Alliance and the Oregon Students Empowered, which led the planned protest uh, to protest the parade in order to counter, uh, and I'm quoting, Nazis and fascists, This was a uh, Multnomah County Republicans were going to be a part of the parade, and they are apparently all Nazis and fascists. There's no uh, differentiation, no delineation. Everybody who happens to be in that group is a Nazi or fascist, apparently. And they urged their supporters to sign a petition to bring the thing back uh, uh, to 82nd for this parade held in East Portland. This community has already been threatened and affected by these radical Christian extremists enough, says the Direct Action Alliance post on Facebook. Now, I don't know, but, but is the Multnomah County uh, Republican, is that a Christian organization or is that a political organization that may or may not include some Christians? So I find that rather interesting that they're being referred to as a radical Christian extremist group. Both groups insisted that um, they had nothing to do with an anonymous email that threatened to shut down the event unless Multnomah County Republican Party was excluded. But those commenting online were stunned by the protesters' chutzpah. Seriously, guys, says one responding on Facebook, uh, you are the reason it got canceled to begin with. Uh, Victimizers playing the victim. Well, parade organizers canceled the 11th annual event on uh, Tuesday after receiving an email that offered uh, a choice. This is to the parade organizers. Bar the local GOP, because apparently they are Nazis and fascists, all of them. Uh, And by the way, there was a general invitation given if you'd like to come and represent 
something other than what protesters have been representing in the in the area for the last uh, three months, uh, come and be a part of the parade. So you weren't you didn't sign up for it. You could just come and be a part of that that element of the parade. Uh, So these are the choices. Bar the local GOP or we will have 200 or more people rush into the parade, into the middle and drag and push those people out. You have seen how much power we have downtown and that the police cannot stop us from shutting down roads. So please consider your decision wisely, said the email from the giver at riseup.net. Now, the sad thing is uh, much of that paragraph is absolutely true. They have a significant amount of power in the city of Portland because our city leaders are unwilling to. Uh, do what's necessary to protect the majority of citizens in the in the uh, city uh, in favor of those who disrupt and uh, in a peaceful in, uh, uh, event uh, t- uh, choose to become violent. Well, Oregon Students Empowered said it had no affiliation to the letter, adding we wish that the parade organizers could be re- could have removed the Nazis from marching in Portland. Again, reference to the Nazis. Uh, instead of shutting down the parade for everyone who had nothing to do with it. Well, that's that tends to be what happens in Portland that overwhelmingly support uh, supported uh, President Trump's opponent. I don't know why the uh, organizers of these events punish the city of Portland, a place where uh, one of the few places where Hillary Clinton, for example, in the presidential election won, where the majority of people support that uh, point of view, why the rest of the city is punished, I don't know. But nonetheless, the, peti- the petition posted change.org a call for a compromise asking the Multnomah County Republicans to proactively exclude those uh, who wish to use the parade to promote hateful, biased, exclusionary messaging against immigrants, queer community, communities of color, and other marginalized group. Because if the GOP is involved, then the presumption is that's what it's all about. Well, in return, protest groups, they said, uh, like Rise Up and Direct Action Alliance or any other group that's acceptable in our community, uh, were um, asked to refrain from committing and or threatening to commit violence or damage during the parade. In other words, we only want one perspective expressed in our community. That's us. And uh, we won't um, erupt into violence if you choose to uh, simply step away. It's a sad thing. Well, I was especially uh, taken by uh, Professor Everett Piper, uh, who wrote to fellow academics. Now, Dr. Piper is president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Not a Daycare, Why a Coddled Nation is a Crippled Nation, due to be released in August by uh, Regnery. And this is what he writes about this one-sided view of how the country seems to be uh, tilted, and particularly in an academic setting. He writes, it seems that hardly a day goes by when the call for safe spaces and speech codes is not headline news. Every week, there are too many stories to count of uh, colleges and universities showing themselves to be more bastions of ideological fascism than bulwarks of intellectual liberty, where students and faculty alike seem to be more passionate about restricting debate than they are about defending the freedom to disagree. This week's victim of the Snowflake Rebellion is Ann Coulter, who's just confirmed that she is canceling her controversial speech at UC Berkeley after she lost the backing of conservative groups that had initially sponsored her appearance, according to the New York Times. I'm not writing to affirm or refute Ann Coulter or her views. I am writing to implore Berkeley Chancellor Nicholas Dirks and all other uh, leaders of America's educational community to remember our industry's rich history of the liberal arts. I am writing to plead with my colleagues to stand firm for the Academy's millennia-old commitment to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of inquiry, freedom of thought. I am writing on behalf of liberty. I'm writing because I believe in classical liberalism. I'm writing because I believe in human freedom. I am writing because 
I believe in truth. What is, and by the way, well, I won't even go into that now, but truth, according to some African-American activists, is a uh, an element of white supremacy, that there is no absolute truth, that that is simply a, a tool used uh, to express white supremacy. That's a whole other subject for another day. But what has happened to the ivory tower, he goes on. Whatever became of the free exchange of ideas, whatever happened to the value of a good argument, when did the desire to learn become supplanted by the right to be affirmed? When did education become more interested in ce- celebrating personal feelings than pursuing objective facts? The answer to the riots and rebellion that Berkeley and many other college campuses are facing is not found in the tyranny of false tolerance or the ideological safety of trigger warnings. It isn't found in more restrictions and more legalism. It isn't found in perpetrating victimization, violence, or vengeance. It is found in returning to the age-old mission of the Liberal Arts Academy, in veritas, in the pursuit of truth, and in its desired behavioral outcome, the practice and virtue of love, as C.S. Lewis told us in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Narnia. It is found in what is good, not in what is safe. Chancellor Dirks has stated that Berkeley is is the home of free speech movement. I would beg to differ. Human freedom, intellectual or otherwise, was not born in Berkeley, California, but rather in the community called Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. The fundamental principles of higher education are grounded in the words of the word, that truth that was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the Logos, in the external preexistent alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The very freedom Dr. Dirks and all others of his ilk claim to hold so dear finds its home not on a, at a campus near the sandy beaches of our West Coast, but rather in a stable under the stars of the ancient Israel. Free speech at Berkeley or anywhere else, for that matter, has never been achieved outside the context of the foundational admonition, dare I say biblical admonition, stated very succinctly in Berkeley's own founding motto, let there be light. Serious educators ought to be guided by the implied objectivity of that light, by the immutable and not malleable, by the right and just and the true, not the transient construct of tolerance, trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, and whatever happens to be politically correct on a given day. As Os Guinness said, all truth is true even if no one believes it, and all falsehood is false even if everyone believes it. Truth is true, and that's just the end of it. The goal of the university, whether it be Berkeley, Baylor, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma Wesleyan, should be what is factual and not the newest fluid fad. Honesty demands that we boldly pursue ideas bested by time, defended by reason, validated by experience, and confirmed by revelation. We will only find truth when we place our confidence in it and not in ourselves. We will only learn when we love truth enough to measure all ideas with a measuring rod outside of those things being measured and are willing to discard those ideas we find to be intolerable, inferior, and useless. History has taught us time and time again that political power always rises its angry, raises its angry fist when timeless principles are lost. We know that without the scale of self-evident truths grounded in the laws of nature and nature's God, every culture eventually finds itself subject to the rule of the gang or the tyranny of the individual. Again, Dr. Everett Piper, his book out in August, Not a Daycare, Why a Coddled Nation is a Crippled Nation. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Steve Malloy is going to join us. He's with the Energy and Environment Legal Institute. He's a legal senior policy fellow. He wrote a letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal in response to an editorial titled Highway from the Endangerment Zone. He joins us now to talk about uh, the possibility of collusion between the previous administration, the Obama EPA, that they may have improperly predetermined the outcome of the endangerment-finding rulemaking. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Georgie, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the editorial you were responding to in your letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal. Well, you know, uh, President Trump promised to drain the swamp, and one of his big campaign platforms was climate, drain the climate swamp, and uh, shrink EPA, if not eliminate EPA. And uh, so when you get to climate, you know, the original sin with EPA is that EPA declared carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases uh, to, to endanger the public welfare. That's called the endangerment finding. And so people like me, you know, prominent climate skeptics, you know, we expect the president to live up to his promises and to, uh, among other things, roll back this endangerment finding because carbon dioxide is not dangerous. In fact, it's necessary for life. But, you know, since President Trump has been in, the, the swamp has kind of taken over and the swamp is pushing back. And the swamp doesn't necessarily want to have the endangerment finding rolled back. And the swamp has actually somehow persuaded the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, which is normally normally sees things eye to eye with folks like me. Um, so I had to respond, and I just you know pointed out. So this is a journal editorialized why it's okay to leave the endangerment finding in place. It's not going to matter that the EPA considers carbon dioxide to be a toxic substance that's hazard to public health and welfare. So I responded. So doesn't science require precision, <laughs> accuracy, and truth? Well, and honesty, right? So, <laughs> so if you read my letter, you'll see that, you know, EPA, um, and, and I was sort of polite in my letter, I mean, there's no question EPA had predetermined the outcome of the endangerment finding. And going, they knew that they were going to say carbon dioxide was a threat to public welfare. They knew that, and that's improper. Um, you know, and, and they finalized this endangerment finding around the time that, if you remember, um, November, December 2009, ClimateGate, the, the, mm-hmm. the scandal over the emails, uh, climate scientists broke. And EPA point blank refused to even consider any of that, even though, you know, the ClimateGate scandal validated everything skeptics had been saying about climate scientists, how they had been lying and cheating all these years. And then um, also, I guess, you know, my final point is, is that, look, um, you know, the court decision that allowed EPA to regulate carbon dioxide occurred amidst, you know, early climate hysteria. When Al Gore's movie first came out, people didn't know one thing from another. Well, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years later, we know a lot. Um, you know, EPA didn't consider the global warming pause, which is still going on. You know, people say, oh, 2016 is the hottest year ever. Well, that's not true. 2016 is no warmer than 1998, which was the last major El Nino year. And it's despite having, you know, we have a lot more uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So, the, and, and of course, you know, the, we haven't had a major hurricane in 10 years. Tornadoes are down. All the natural damages that environmentalists have claimed the global warming can cause, it's all on the decline, even though there's more CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So, yeah, this is the time to revisit the endangerment finding. Now, all of us uh, agree following the science march <laughs> that science 
uh, serves the public when there is a, a genuine effort to, to reach the truth. It, but there is a faction that says science is infallible, it's objective, it's unquestionable, it's immutable truth that cannot be challenged in any way, which sort of contradicts the whole notion of uh, of science. And anyone who, who challenges uh, the... I don't even quite know how to describe the, the uh, prevailing view uh, is considered a skeptic and essentially a heretic. Well, right. Right. So we all saw the quote unquote March for science last week's really sort of a March on science. Um, you know, if, if, if you disagree with the American left or if you want to dis- defund the left, then you're anti-science. This is obviously crazy and it's not true. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that March was comically ridiculous. And it's in the notion that the left is somehow the safeguard, guard, safeguarding force of science. And there's no, you know, climate scientists in particular have done more to destroy science in this country than any group I can think of. And and just moving back, the left in general and environmentalists especially, the most anti-science people I've ever seen in my life. Well, there's another march this weekend, the People's Climate yeah. March, uh, and uh, you point out that there were shots actually fired at the office of uh, one climate skeptic during last weekend's uh, March right. for well, Science. Th- things are getting completely out of control. I mean, we've seen what's happened with, say, Ann Coulter at Berkeley. Well, last weekend, after the March of Science went through uh, Huntsville, Alabama, there's the, you know, the University of uh, Alabama, Huntsville's there, and that holds the offices of John Christie's, one of the most prominent climate skeptic scientist. He, runs, he, gets, he collects all the satellite data. That's so important. And so someone uh, put seven shots into the office right next to him after, after the March for Science. I mean, the message is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Well, in your challenge um, and the information that you gather through the Freedom of Information Act, um, what's likely to happen under this current administration in terms of uh, <clears throat> rolling back what had uh, previously been uh, endorsed? Well, so the president has, you know, ordered EPA and EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt to roll back the um, the Clean Power Plan, which are President Obama's global warming rules, and that's all fine and good. But the underlying uh, rule that's important is, EP- is EPA's 2009 determinations endangerment finding that CO2 threatens public welfare, and unless that is rolled back, then everything President Trump is doing is I'm afraid going to be for naught because environmentalists, you know, they're very clever. They're going to find some Ninth Circuit judge someplace mm. who's going to say, well, EPA, you say CO2, this public welfare, you can't roll back these rules. And I, that's what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I know that rolling back the endangerment finding is going to be hard. It's going to be messy. It's going to take some time. Um, but it has to be done. And, you know, you, you, there's no easy way to drain the swamp. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you just, you, you know, you, you kind of have to go go at it. Yeah, it's going to be a long, uh, yeah. hard slog, but it's one that, that must be undertaken. Must be. Must well, I, I appreciate so much your oversight and uh, helping to keep us informed. Steve Malloy, I appreciate talking with you once again. Thank you, Georgie. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Steve Malloy is with the Energy and Environment Legal Institute uh, talking about this latest um, uh, EPA finding. And by the way, he is the... Uh, legal Senior Policy Fellow with the Energy and Environment Legal Institute.
We're going to take a quick break in just a moment. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about Bill Nye, the eugenics guy. Yeah, that Bill Nye, who really started out as a Saturday Night Live character. He was a a scientist that lots of kids enjoyed as they were growing up. He's um, shifting somewhat. But anyway, we're going to talk about one of the latest outrageous statements he has made about extra kids. You may be one or you may have had one. But he's suggesting that extra kids, in quotes, should be forbidden. So we'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and uh, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Thursday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking a few moments ago about uh, the EPA um mishandling information or predetermining an outcome, uh, despite the fact that the information that followed contradicted that outcome. And I think the frustration with people who have a high regard for science, understand the the scientific method requires that challenges be taken seriously to make sure that your assumptions and findings can either be reproduced or are are accurate. Uh, But we're in an age now where if you raise a question if scientific inquiry that challenges what is uh, now referred to as a consensus, which is a bit of an overstatement, um, is considered anti-science and skeptic. Uh, I did note that uh, Christine Roselle, who writes for Town Hall, points out that Bill Nye uh, has shifted away from being uh, the, the nice guy that helps explain how things work to the eugenics guy. There's a new Netflix show called Bill Nye Saves the World. Uh, it has some rather interesting thoughts on human population. And in his uh, last uh, edition of the series, he mused over the idea that people in the developing world, or rather the developed world, should be penalized for having extra kids who will then potentially contribute to climate change. Well, he dedicated the 13th and final episode on the first season of Bill Nye Saves the World. And by the way, Bill Nye cannot save the world, just saying. Uh, to discussing overpopulation and how the world's population has grown rapidly since he was a child. And apparently his being here is good, but your extra kids, not so much. Well, after all Almost gleefully endorsing family planning and contraception services, uh, he and a panel of experts sat down to discuss possible solutions to the issue of people having extra children. Well, after it was uh, pointed out that in Niger, people tend to have large families, but relatively low carbon footprints, it was then agreed that, well, that was permissible. So if you're in Niger and you have extra kids, you're okay. Then I dropped this rather curious zinger. Um, so should we have policies that penalize people for having extra kids in the developed world. Now, extra. I'm not sure how you define extra. While one panelist said that he was slightly in favor of the idea, I'm not sure how you're slightly in favor of whether or not people can have extra kids. Uh, Others took issue with the idea of telling a person how many or how few children they were allowed to have. One pointed out, uh, likely correctly, that poorer women and or minority women would likely be the ones penalized for this crime. You know, Planned Parenthood's founder would be quite pleased with the uh, the direction this conversation is going. She, too, was a eugenicist. Well, Nye doesn't explain what uh, he would consider to be an extra child. The replacement level fertility rate is 2.1 children per woman, something that uh, most of the developed world hasn't seen in years. So we're actually well below that. It's um, downright spooky and chilling to say that parents should be penalized for daring to expand their families. If anything, one would think that parents should be encouraged to have more children lest the rest of the world end up like Japan, where they have a significant shortage, particularly of um, 
of girls. Now, Christine points out in her column that it's also rather upsetting to see being a mother and a housewife, a homemaker, which is a better term, uh, discussed as if it is a negative. Many women find immense joy and fulfillment in being a mom and a homemaker. A woman shouldn't be derided or thought of as lesser than if she chooses this option instead of pursuing a career outside the home. I think child rearing is something of a career in and of itself. It's not a bad thing, nor should it be looked down on. Uh, yet throughout the episode, it was only discussed in a negative light. Well, she concludes her column by saying, uh, it's sad to see someone who was once a childhood hero of mine, let's be honest, Bill Nye, the science guy days at school were always the best days, uh, fall into this disgusting quasi-nihilist rhetoric. Bill Nye used to be the uh, funny and informative. Now he's just cringeworthy, she writes. And for good measure, here's a list of extra kids, in quotes, uh, who I'm pretty happy were born. She points to Celine Dion. She was the youngest of 14, clearly an extra kid. Um, Dolly Parton, she was the fourth of 12 children, no doubt an extra kid. Uh, Stephen Colbert, who would agree probably with everything Bill Nye said, he was the youngest of 11. He clearly is an extra child. And Ben Franklin, his uh, uh, his father's 15th child, his mother's eighth child, clearly extra. And Jim Gaffigan, the youngest of six children. So I'm not sure how you choose. Do you have the children and then pick which ones uh, you want to keep or do you just not have? I'm not sure how Bill Nye would suggest that all be sorted out. But nonetheless, Bill Guy, the eugenics guy. Well, tomorrow on the program, it being Friday, we are going to step away from some of the more serious issues in the news. And believe you me, there's plenty of serious news to be discussed. In fact, we'll probably break in if they come up with some sort of deal on the uh, the budget. Uh, we're hearing whisperings, and I talked about it earlier in the show, that there's uh, uh, being presented an option of kicking the can down the road another week. And that's very likely what's going to happen, at least in the House. Uh, so that gives them a bit more time, even though they've known since December that they had until tomorrow to come up with a budget. We've talked about that, too, so I won't go into the detail of their irresponsibility and unwillingness to uh, take on the difficult task of each one of the 12 spending bills that should be analyzed uh, carefully to determine if the spending level is too high, too low, whether or not the agencies are functioning as they ought But that's all behind us now. That's when men and women in Congress took that responsibility more seriously. Um, That's not going to happen this time around. So they're likely going to kick the can down the road a week, which means we'll have the same conversations uh, that we had this week, next week, in anticipation of some kind of budget deal that may uh, may or may not benefit the American people and may or may not uh, reflect a serious consideration of uh, the funding of various agencies in the federal government. So barring uh, breaking in to discuss that, um, my guess is we're going to just focus on uh, some of the lighter uh, side of the news. So I hope you can join us uh, for that. Also, I want to remind you that if you have not yet logged on to our website, kpdq.com, I want to encourage you to do that because I know I've spoken to so many people who have said that Israel, a trip to Israel, we talked with David Brog earlier today in his book, Reclaiming Israel's History. Many of us have said we want to take an opportunity at some point in life to travel to the Holy Land. Well, we're offering that opportunity November 1st through the 10th. Um, Genesis Tours is going to be uh, heading that up. There's a teaching pastor that I think you will, Sean Thornton, I think you will thoroughly enjoy. And this is a guided tour in which you have... Uh, tour guides who are very well informed with the history 
of the land. They're very well informed with the uh, with the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And I've always been very impressed by how well they understand uh, the land, the history, and, and so on. Uh, we want to give you an opportunity to join this uh, 2017 group. In, ha- in fact, it's going to be uh, during the time when the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem, and that's in relationship to the 1967 war when it was uh, restored as Israel's capital. Uh, so there's lots going on during this year, 2017. But there's an opportunity for you to travel with others from around the country to explore the land of the Bible. You can go to kpdq.com and find details of some of the places you'll be visiting, some of the things you can anticipate, the cost, and some of the more common questions are answered there as well. And I should mention that Genesis Tours does a great job of just answering your questions. If you phone them with questions, they are happy to accommodate you, uh, to uh, provide you with whatever you need to make a decision uh, to be a part of this 2017 trip to experience Israel. I've done it with Genesis, and uh, nobody does it better. Again, kpdq.com for all the important details there. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. Uh, and um, let's see, Justin Mansfield for engineering a portion of today's program, James Blind for producing. Have a great night, and we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.